way back to our seats and tables. Let's get back into the Word of God this morning. Get your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. We are a Christ-centered family. Glorify God by loving Him, by loving others, and by making disciples. And one of the main things we do together is Sunday morning is talk to each other. So that's good. After we talk to each other, we also get into the Word of God. I know, I love, I love how hard it is to get you guys back to seats. This is our family. But now what we do is we open the Word of God, we believe that this is the Word of God, and so therefore we labor and we long to understand it, really work to see what it's saying to us, so that we can believe what it says, obey what it teaches, and delight in the God that it reveals to us. And so, I, every week I, I come to a new passage preparing to preach it on Sunday, and I don't know why I'm always surprised at how beautiful that passage ends up being. I just need to stop being surprised, and this passage is no exception. We meet Jesus yet again in this passage, and this time we see him in a whole, of ministering at least to his disciples in a whole new light. And this week Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's there with his disciples, he's there celebrating the Passover supper, and he's there up in the upper room uh, with them. This is called the Last Supper, and it's called the Last Supper because it's the last time that Jesus is together with his disciples, the last meal they share. And in fact, it's also the Last Supper that Jesus is going to have on earth before his betrayal uh, and death. And so if Jesus has anything he wants to say to his disciples, now's the time to say it. This is Jesus' last time to teach them before he's betrayed. And so last week, we see this Last Supper began with Jesus showing his disciples a model of radical humility and love. When he, the God of the universe, in the flesh, got down and washed the feet of dirty men. This week, in John 13, 18-30, Jesus shifts his focus a little bit. Jesus looks off to what's coming just a little bit down the road, what's happening later that very night when he's betrayed. And so in this passage today, Jesus focuses on his betrayal, and he does two things. First, he prepares his disciples for what's about to happen. And then second, he begins the process of that very thing happening. <laughs> in other words, he prepares his disciples for his betrayal, and then he sets the wheels in motion of his betrayal. So that's what we're going to see in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. And I'm so excited to get into it today. Um, so let me go ahead and read it. John 13, 18 through 30, and then I will pray. This is Jesus speaking. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, 
Who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Jesus had, or sorry, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, like we said before, because this is your word, we want to know what it says. And we don't just want to know what it says so that we can understand it in our minds alone, but so that we can live it, so that we can believe it, obey it, and delight in you, God, the God that we meet in it. So, Father, use it as what it is, a two-edged sword, Lord. Use it to cut to our hearts. Use it to do heart surgery and change us, Father. I pray that as a result of what we see in your authoritative word, it would change the way we live, change what we believe, and give us a fuller and more beautiful view of the God that we worship. God, we have high expectations of your word because it is your word, Lord. So please, this morning, move. Make us look more like you and your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus and the disciples are celebrating the Passover. They're in Jerusalem, they're in the upper room, and they're sharing a meal. And already in this chapter, John has already given a nod to what's coming down the road. He's already hinted at what's happening just a little bit later that night. If you look with me in verse chapter or verse 1 of chapter 13, we read that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to his Father. This is the hour, the moment that his entire ministry was pointing forward to, and that hour has come, the hour of his crucifixion. The next verse, uh, verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then in 13, 10, Eleven, Jesus says to Peter, you are clean, but not every one of you. And then John continues to explain and says, for he knew who was to betray him. So already in this chapter alone, John has been hinting and nodding towards what's coming just down the road, what's coming in just a couple hours. But this hasn't started only in chapter 13, all the way through the book of John. John has been pointing forwards to this moment. He's been pointing forward to the fact that somebody's going to betray Jesus and telling us exactly who it is. So really quickly, looking at John 6, 64, we'll put it up on the screen. Here, Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then John clarifies. And he says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is all the way back in John chapter 6. Just a couple verses later in John chapter 6, again, Jesus answered them, verses 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And then John jumps in and he says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Then John 12, 4, again, Judas is mentioned. And when Judas is mentioned in John Chapter 12, verse 4, we read that, But Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, and then we get a little, high, a little, little insert from John, he who was about to betray him. So over and over, 
through the book of John, John points forward, he hints, he nudges, he nods towards what's coming later on, telling us who is going to betray Jesus. So before we even get into our passage today, John 13, 18 through 30, we have to notice two things about Jesus' betrayal. And the first one is this. Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and he knew exactly who was going to do it. That's the first thing. Jesus knew exactly what was coming and who was going to do it. We see that very clearly in 664, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. The point is this. Jesus is not in the dark. Jesus knows exactly what's coming and he knows who's going to make it happen. The second thing we have to notice before jumping into 13, 18 through 30 is this. Jesus did nothing to prevent it from happening. So Jesus knew exactly what was happening and who's going to do it. And Jesus did nothing to try to stop it. I mean, he was with Judas every single day for years. And to our knowledge, he never did anything to call Judas out on what he was about to do, to to speak to him about it, to do anything to try to stop it. Actually, the exact inverse. He, He built a relationship with him. He spent time with him. He washed his feet. All the while knowing that this man was about to betray him to his executors. All the while knowing that he was going to do nothing to stop it. So those are the two things we have to see before we even dive into this passage. Jesus knows exactly what's coming and who's going to do it. And he does nothing to try to stop it. But now in this passage, Jesus speaks more clearly to his disciples about his betrayal than he has done yet so far in the book of John. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, who's going to do it, and how they should be prepared when it does. In fact, that's the thing that's going to stand out the most to us. Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for the storm that's looming on the horizon. So let's start by looking in verse 18. 18 through 20. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Guys, I find, I find verse 18 chilling. Because what we read in verse 18, let's look at it again, is he's quoting from Psalm verse 41 where Jesus says, Well, David was speaking there. But what Jesus is saying is, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, what does that mean? He who ate my bread. In other words, the one who sat at table with me. The one who I've shared meals with, broken bread with. The one who I have had intimate relationship with. That one is the one who has lifted his heel against me. Lifted his heel for a purpose. Lifted his heel, in other words, to crush me. Jesus is telling his disciples that a close, intimate friend is about to crush him. And I mean, we know it, it hurts to get hurt at all. <laughs> but it hurts twice as much to get hurt by a friend. I would be hurt if somebody dug through my personal information and then spread it with the world, but I'd be twice as hurt if I divulged and confessed personal sins and struggles to deep friends like the elder board, and then Rob and Everett posted it on Facebook. <laughs> It hurts to get hurt, but it hurts twice as much to get hurt 
from a friend. And that's exactly what's about to happen here. Jesus tells his disciples that it's about to happen, telling them that a friend, somebody who's broken bread with him, is about to crush him. As we've already seen, Jesus isn't surprised that that is coming, but he doesn't want his disciples to be surprised either. Jesus wants to prepare them for what's about to happen. So, in verse 19, he warns them. Let's look there. He says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus wants to make sure that they know what's coming. Jesus is about to be crushed. He's about to die. He's about to be nailed to a cross. And I mean, this is the guy that they have been hoping in. This is the guy that they believe to be the Messiah. And so something like this, the death of the man that you've been hoping in, could absolutely shake the foundation of your faith. But Jesus here is warning them beforehand, and he tells them what's going to happen, so that when it does happen, it won't shake the foundation of their faith. Rather, Jesus is telling them this so that when it does happen, it will serve as a still greater proof that Jesus is who he says he is. He's making a prophecy so that when it's fulfilled, it will further validate who he is and what he's taught. Jesus is showing us this is his original plan. Jesus wants them to know for sure that he is truly the great I am. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that what? That I am he. So Jesus prepares his disciples, telling them this, I am about to be betrayed by a friend, and when it happens, it will not be an accident. It will all be according to plan. Now, I want us to keep that in mind. We need to keep that in mind as we move forward throughout all the chapters to come. Because in the chapters to come, we're going to see some stuff that doesn't... We're going to have a hard time believing it's actually the plan. We're going to have a hard time believing that this is what Jesus was hoping for. When Jesus is mocked and spit upon, it's going to be hard to believe that that was a part of his plan when he was murdered. It's going to be hard to believe that that was part of Jesus' plan. But let's remember that nothing to come in the chapters that we're about to see is outside of Jesus' plan. Nor is it outside of Jesus' control. Rather, Jesus knows what's coming. He allows it to happen. It's all according to his plan. So Jesus wants to make sure his disciples know that. So he warns them. So that when it happens, they will believe But that's not the only thing Jesus wanted to make sure of. As we look in verse 20, we see another thing that Jesus was trying to make sure that they knew. Let's read it there together. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now this passage is talking about his sending out of his disciples, and that's not something that's actually going to happen until John chapter 20, verse 21. In that passage, we see that same relationship between the sent and Jesus and the Father. In that passage, we read, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But man, when I look at this passage, I just, I can't help but wonder, what is this missionary passage doing in this passage? What does Jesus' sending of his disciples have to do with his betrayal? Why is Jesus saying this now? What's the point? How does this connect? Does it seem a little bit out of place to you? 
Because it does to me. But the more I thought about it, the more I saw that actually it fits quite perfectly with everything Jesus is doing here. Because what Jesus is doing in this passage, remember, is preparing his disciples for life without him. He's preparing his disciples for what their lives are going to be like here on earth after he has been betrayed and died. And so this is what he's basically saying to his disciples. When I'm betrayed, number one, keep believing that I am he. That was verses 18 and 19. And then number two, when I'm betrayed, keep representing me to the world. When I'm killed, keep believing that I am he, but also keep representing me to the world. When I'm gone, keep believing that I am he, but then also keep representing me to the world. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the storm that's coming right on the horizon. And he's telling them, I am about to be betrayed. And when I'm gone, two things. Number one, keep believing and keep going. Keep believing, keep going. That's the whole message of verses 18 through 20. But now as we move on into verse 21, the story of this evening continues. And we see conversation between Jesus and the disciples. So let's dive in. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus knows this is coming. But even though Jesus knows this is coming, even though this is a part of the plan, we read here that Jesus was still troubled in spirit. I mean, after all, even though this was part of the plan, something terrible is still, about, still going to happen. Jesus is not happy about what's happening. What's happening is still wrong, but Jesus is going to use this terrible thing for his purposes. He's about to be betrayed by a friend. He's about to be crucified. So Jesus is troubled by all this. And while John tells the readers that it's Judas who's going to be the betrayer, when we look back over the book of John, we actually see that Jesus has never really clearly told his disciples who is going to betray him or that that betrayal is actually happening. If we, if we actually look at these verses, this is some of the things that Jesus has said. John 6, 71, all he says to his disciples is, one of you is a devil. And then thirteen ten. last week, you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He talks about this betrayal coming, but he hasn't yet really told his disciples who's going to do it. So the question that must just be echoing in his disciples' minds is, who? Who is it, Jesus? Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me? Who? Well, in verse 22, the disciples wrestle with this. Read with me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John referring to himself here, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is the devil amongst us? Lord, who is unclean? Lord, who is the friend that has broken bread with you but is now lifting his heel against you? Lord, who is it? 
Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quick. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And so John leans back against Jesus and says, Jesus, who is it? Who is this devil? Who is the one betraying you? Who is the one who is unclean? And Jesus replies, the one to whom I give this morsel of bread once I have dipped it. Now for Jesus to hand food to somebody is for Jesus to serve somebody. And in a culture of hospitality like this one, to serve somebody was a great gesture of friendship and honor. But here, Jesus serves Judas. Jesus serves Judas, and he uses that act as a way to point out who his betrayer is is going to be. He dips it and he gives it to Judas. Judas is the one who has broken bread with him. Judas is the one who has his heel lifted against Jesus. And the amazing thing is Jesus still doesn't stop him. He's just about to betray him and he doesn't stop him. Rather, he does the exact opposite. Jesus says to Judas, he sends him out on his evil errand saying, what you are going to do, do quickly. You might remember back in John chapter 10, verses 18, Jesus says to the crowd, he says to them, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing here? What we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus is willingly laying down his life. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is still in control. Jesus is in control of everything that's about to happen in the chapters to come. The gears of all of this have been set in motion. The pistons have begun to move. The wheels have begun to turn, taking the story to its inevitable conclusion. And it's Jesus who has turned the key. It's Jesus who has begun the series of events that will eventually lead to his death. And he does so and he says, what you are about to do, do quickly. Jesus' death is not the result of him being hoodwinked. It's not the result of him being tricked or blindsided. Jesus is in control. No one takes Jesus' life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. When we look at this passage as a whole, verses 13, 18 through 30 of chapter 13, we see two things. Number one, Jesus prepares his disciples for what's about to happen. And then secondly, he begins the process that will cause it to happen. A storm's coming for the disciples. It's on the horizon. It's looming. The Lord is about to be betrayed and killed. And that storm might absolutely shake the foundation of the disciples' faith. They might begin to doubt whether or not this Jesus is truly the Messiah or not. They might begin to wonder whether they made a bad decision a couple years ago. But this message to the disciples that Jesus really wants them to get here is this. It's when the storm comes, keep believing and keep going. 
When the storm comes, when my betrayal happens, keep believing and keep going. Keep believing that I am He. When I am betrayed, remember that I told you this was going to happen. I told you that this was all according to plan. That I am in control of this storm. That I, in fact, started this process. So when I am betrayed, keep believing. Keep believing that I am He. That I am the Messiah. That I am God. And don't just keep believing, but keep going. Keep believing and keep going. Keep representing me to the world. Keep going in my name until all believe that I am He. These are the two things that Jesus teaches them to prepare them for the storm that's ahead. And when I read this passage, I can't help but think that everybody in this room, every single person, is in either one of two different situations. Either you are currently in some sort of storm, some sort of crisis, or a storm is on your horizon. Either you are currently faced with a crisis, a trial, or a season of suffering that might cause you to doubt whether or not this God is really in control of everything, or a crisis, trial, or season of suffering is coming for you right around the corner. I know that's cheery, happy news. But it's the reality of living in the world that we live in. It's the reality of living in the sinful and broken world. And so when that storm comes, or if you're in that storm, I want to encourage us to remember something that Jesus wanted his disciples to remember. To remember, the, remember this simple message that Jesus had for them. Keep believing. And keep going. Keep believing. Keep going. Keep believing who Jesus is and keep going and shedding the light of him across the world. Keep believing that I am he, like the disciples, remembering that even if we don't know what it is, Jesus still has a plan. That even if we don't feel it, our God is still in control. And even if we don't see him, he is still God. Keep believing that I am he. And when I think about this issue, there is a storm that all of us are in, uh, every single one of us in this room. And this is something that, that I struggle with, and I'm sure it's something that you guys struggle with as well. Actually, I know it is because of all the conversations that I've had with you about this. But today, we are Christians living in a culture where faith is less and less and less acceptable, and where sin is more and more and more celebrated. So often in conversations that I have with you and with other Christians outside of the church, the term these days keeps coming up. Oh, things these days. Oh, the world these days. And to be honest, when, when I think about the world these days, it makes sense why we're responding the way we are. This culture is standing against everything we're standing for. And so I feel this way too. I look at the world around us and I think, man, it's not supposed to be this way. And I'm sure you feel that way too. But the thing that I'm tempted to do and the thing that I think that many of us do is we respond to the culture around us in a way that is not helpful and is not God-glorifying. Because in fact, the ways that we tend to respond to a sinful, secular culture is in one of two ways. We fear and we are angry. We respond with anger and fear. 
Those are the two primary ways that Christians tend to be responding to the culture that we're living in. And anger, let's start with anger. Anger makes sense. Because sometimes uh, this is a righteous anger. We look around at the world around us and we are absolutely heartbroken by everything we see. And we say, it's not supposed to be this way. We hate the things we see in the world around us. But very often that anger takes a different form. Very often that righteous anger becomes unrighteous anger. And rather than just being heartbroken at the sin we see around us, we stand up and we shake our fists at the world. We shake our fists at the people around us, yelling in our hearts at least, why do you believe that? Or why do you do that? Why do you think that? Forgetting that the people that we're yelling at in our hearts are lost. They're dead. They're blinded to the truth. So yes, we must be heartbroken with a righteous anger for the sin that we see around us in the world, but we cannot be surprised when sinners sin. We cannot be surprised when blind people live in darkness. They're blind. So when we think about how we respond to a culture of sin, be angry. Be angry with a righteous anger. Be, righteous, be angry, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, but do not sin. The second way that we tend to respond to a sinful culture is with fear. And this one is so easy to understand. We look back over the course of our lives and we think to ourselves, man, if things have gone from here to here in my lifetime, what about my kids? What about my grandkids? Where is this culture going in light of everything that we've seen so far? And so Christians, we look at our culture today, we look at the storm that, we in, that we're in and we respond with anger and we respond with fear. But how should we respond? How should we respond to this cultural crisis, this storm that we find ourselves in? I want to call us as a church to respond like this. To not let our response be that of unrighteous anger and fear, but rather a response that focuses on believing who our God is. That we keep believing that he is in control of all things. That we keep believing that he has a plan even though we can't see it. And that we keep believing that he is a sovereign king who still reigns over his kingdom. Keep believing. Because in this world we will have tribulation. But take heart, be free, because Jesus has overcome the world. We keep believing, fixing our eyes on him. Because he is in control. And he has a plan. But that doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. Rather, what that means... For us is we keep believing and keep going. Keep believing and keep going. Keep representing Jesus in this fallen world. And keep representing Jesus to this fallen world. Keep going intentionally into the dark places. Keep building relationships with those people in darkness. Do this in order that we may keep shining Jesus' light into the dark places. Keep telling the story of Jesus' radical humility and love. Keep telling the story of what he has done in your life. And keep telling the story of what he can do in their life. Keep praying for your friends. Keep praying for your family that does not know him. Keep being desperate to see dead people come to life. Keep praying for your town, for your region, for your country, and for this world. Keep praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
and then keep going. Go to the nations. Cross borders and cultures and languages telling them about the one who came here. The one who came to earth. Telling us that I am he. The one that died on the cross for our sins. The one who offers them eternal life. And eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God. Be free when we pray with me.